giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, 1 Peter 3, 7, then the smile of God will be forfeited, their prayers will be hindered, and strife and misery will prevail in the home. And he said, Wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. Second Kings 4, 23 While admiring her virtues, her husband appears in a much less favorable light. His question might suggest that he was still ignorant of the death of his son, yet that scarcely seems likely. If he had made no inquiry about the child, he must have been strangely lacking in tender regard for him, and his wife's desire to undertake an arduous journey at such a time ought to have informed him that some serious emergency had arisen. It is difficult to escape the conclusion that his language was more an expression of irritability, that he resented being left alone in his grief. At any rate, his words served to throw light upon another praiseworthy trait in his wife, that it was her custom to attend the prophet's services on the feast days and the Sabbath. Though a great woman, she did not disdain those unpretentious meetings on Mount Carmel. No genuine Christian, however wealthy or high his station, will consider it beneath him to meet with his poorer brethren and sisters. Those words of her husband's may be considered from another angle, namely, as a further testing of her faith. Even when the deepest affection obtains between husband and wife, there is not always spiritual equality. No, not even where they are one in the Lord. One may steadily grow in grace while the other makes little or no progress. One may enter more deeply into an experimental acquaintance with the truth, which the other is incapable of understanding and discussing. One may be given a much increased measure of faith without the other being similarly blessed. None can walk by the faith of another, and it is well for those of strong faith to remember that. Certainly, there was no cooperation of faith in this instance, Rather did the husband of our great woman seem to discourage than encourage her. She might have reasoned with herself, perhaps this is an intimation from God that I should not seek unto Elisha. But faith would argue, this is but a further testing of me, and since my reliance is in the Lord, I will neither be daunted nor deterred. It is by our reactions to such testings that the reality and strength of our faith is made evident. Faith must not expect a smooth and easy path. And she said, It shall be well. That was the language of firm and unshaken confidence. 
Then she saddled an ass and said to her servant, Drive and go forward, slight not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. Verse 24 Her husband certainly does not shine here. Had he discharged the duties of love, he had undertaken this tiring journey instead of his wife, or at the very least offered to accompany her. But he would not exert himself enough to saddle the ass for her, but left her to do that. How selfish many husbands are! How slack in bearing or at least sharing their wives' burdens! Marriage is a partnership or it is nothing except in name. And the man who allows his wife to become a drudge and does little or nothing to make her lot lighter and brighter in the home is not worthy to be called husband. Nor is it any sufficient reply to say it is only lack of thought on his part. Inconsiderateness and selfishness are synonymous terms, for unselfishness consists largely in thoughtfulness of others. The best that can be said for this man is that he did not actually forbid his wife starting out for karma. We know not how far distant Shonam was from Carmel, but it appears that the journey was a considerable and hard one in a mountainous country. But love is not quenched by hardships and faith is not rendered inoperative by difficulties. And in the case of this mother, both of these graces were operative within her. Love can brook no delay and thinks not of personal discomfort, as her language to the servant shows. It is also the nature of faith to be speedy and to look for quick results. Patience is a distinct virtue which is only developed by much hard schooling. An intense earnestness possessed the soul of this woman, and where such earnestness is joined with faith, it refuses all denial. While our faith remains a merely mental and mechanical thing, it achieves nothing. But when it is intense and fervent, it will produce results. True, it requires a deep sense of need, often the pressure of an urgent situation to evoke this earnestness. And that is why faith flourishes most in times of stress and trial, for it then has its most suitable opportunity to declare itself. So she went and came unto the man of God to Mount Carmel, and it came to pass, when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shunammite, Verse 25 There are several things of importance to be noticed here. First, like his predecessor, Elisha was the man of the mount. Second Kings 2, 25 Symbolical of his spiritual elevation, his affections set upon things above. Second, but mark how he conducted himself. 
not in haughty pride of fancied self-superiority. He waited not for the woman to reach him, but dispatched his servant to meet her, thereby evidencing his solicitude. Third, was it not a gracious token from the Lord to cheer her heart near the close of a trying journey? How tender are God's mercies! Fourth, that Shunammite denotes either that she was the only pious person in that place, or that she so overtowered her brethren and sisters in spirituality, that such an appellation was quite sufficient for the purpose of identification. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her, and say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. Verse 26 Incidentally, this shows that younger men engaged in the Lord's service and occupying lowlier positions are required to execute commissions from their seniors. Compare Second Timothy 4, verses 11 to 13. We do not regard the woman's it is well as expressing her resignation to the sovereign will of God, but rather as the language of trustful expectation. She seems to have had no doubt whatever about the outcome of her errand. It appears to us that throughout the whole of this incident, the great woman regarded the death of her child as a trial of faith. Her it is well looked beyond the clouds and anticipated the happy issue. Surely we must exclaim, O woman, great is thy faith. Yes, and great too was its reward. For God never puts to confusion those who really count upon him showing himself strong on their behalf. Let us not forget that this incident is recorded for our learning and encouragement. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to thrust her away, and the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is vexed within her, and the Lord hath hid it from me, and hath not told me. Verse 27 Our minds at once revert to the two women who visited the Lord's sepulchre, and when he eventually met them, saying, All hail, came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Matthew 28, 9 In the case before us, the great woman appears to have rightly viewed Elisha as the ambassador of God and to have humbly signified that she had a favor to ask of him. In the rebuffing from Gehazi, we see how her faith met with yet another trial. And then the Lord tenderly interposed through his servant and rebuked the officious attendant. The Lord was accustomed to reveal his secrets unto the prophets. Amos 3.7 But until he did so, they were as ignorant and as dependent upon him as others, as this incident plainly shows. 
here was still a further test of faith. The prophet himself was in the dark, unprepared for her startling request. But the Lord has just as good a reason for concealing as for revealing. In the case before us, it is not difficult to perceive why he had withheld from Elisha all knowledge of the child's death. He would have him learn from the mother herself and that that she might avow her faith. Then she said, Did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Verse 28 Those were powerful arguments to move Elisha to act on her behalf. Thomas Scott said, As she did not impatiently desire children, she could not think that her son had been given her without solicitation merely to become the occasion of her far deeper distress. The second question evidenced that her dependence was entirely upon the word of God through his servant. Matthew Henry said, However the providence of God made disappoint us, we may be sure the promise of God never did, nor ever will, deceive us. Hope in that will not make us ashamed. End of quote. And here we must pause. Chapter 11 Seventh Miracle In the last chapter we dwelt first upon the occasion of this miracle, namely, the death of the great woman's son, second upon the mystery of it. To all appearances, the child had been quite well and full of life in the morning, yet by noon he was a corpse. In her case, such a disaster was doubly inexplicable, for the son had been given to her by the divine bounty because of the kindness she had shown to one of God's servants. And now, to carnal reason, it looked as though he was dealing most unkindly with her. Furthermore, the wonder-working power of God had been engaged in bestowing a son upon her, and now this miracle was neutralized by suddenly snatching him away. Third, upon its expectation... It is inexpressibly blessed to behold how this stricken mother reacted to this seeming catastrophe. Throughout the whole narrative, it is made evident that she regarded this affliction as a trial of her faith, and grandly did her confidence in God triumph over it. Continuing our study of the miracle which follows, we note forth its means. Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up thy loins, and take my staff in thine hand, and go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not, and if any salute thee, answer him not again. And lay my staff upon the face of the child. Second Kings 4.29 Some think the prophet believed that the child was only in a swoon. Yet we can hardly conceive of the mother leaving the boy under such circumstances. 
Rather, had she sent a message by one of her servants. Nor is it likely that Elisha's instructions to the servant would be so preemptorily expressed if such had been the case. Matthew Henry says, I know not what to make of this. Another of the Puritans suggests that it was done out of pure conceit and not by divine instinct, and therefore it failed of the effect. Thomas Scott acknowledged, It is difficult to determine what the prophet meant by thus sending Gehazi. He had divided Jordan by using Elijah's mantle, and perhaps he thought that his own staff would be sufficient. Personally, we are inclined to think that the prophet's design was to teach Gehazi a much-needed lesson. However, this much seems clear from the incident. No servant of God should delegate unto another that which it is his own duty to do. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. 2 Kings 4.30 It is clear from these words of hers that whatever was or was not the prophet's design in ordering his servant to make all speed to where the child lay, she regarded his action as another testing of her faith. She evidently had no confidence in Gehazi or in Elisha's staff as such. She was not to be put off in this way. Her language was both impressive and emphatic, signifying, I swear that I will not return home unless thou dost personally accompany me. The situation is desperate. My expectation is in thee as the Lord's ambassador, and I refuse to take any no. Here we behold the boldness and perseverance of her faith, whether there was any unwillingness on Elisha's part to set out on this journey, or whether he was only putting her to the test, we cannot be sure. But such earnestness and importunity won the day and now stirred the prophet to action. And Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff on the face of the child. But there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awake. Verse 31 Young's Concordance gives as the meaning of the name Gehazi Denir. If the various references made to him be carefully compared, it will be seen that his character and conduct were all of a piece and in keeping with his name. Why Elisha should have had such a man for his personal attendant, we know not. Yet, in view of there being a Judas in the apostolate, we need not be unduly surprised. First, we see him seeking to officiously thrust away the poor mother when she cast herself at his master's feet. Verse 27. Here we note the absence of prayer unto the Lord and the non-success of his efforts. 
Later we find him giving expression to selfish unbelief, a complete lack of confidence in the power of Elisha. Verse 43. Finally, his cupidity masters him and he lies unto Naaman and is stricken with leprosy for his pains. 2 Kings 5, 20-27 Thus, in the verse before us, we have a picture of the unavailing efforts of an unregenerate minister and his failure made manifest to others. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead, laid upon his bed. Verse 32 Previously, we have dwelt much upon the remarkable faith of the mother of the child, yet we must not allow it to so occupy our attention as to obscure the faith of the prophet, for his was equally great. It was no ordinary demand which was now made upon him, and only one who was intimately acquainted with God would have met it as he did. The death of this child was not only quite unexpected by him, but must have seemed bewilderingly strange. Yet though he was in the dark as to the reason of this calamity, he refused to accept it as final. The mother had taken her stand upon the divine bounty and kindness, expecting an outcome in keeping with God's grace toward her, and no doubt, the prophet now reasoned in the same way. Though he had never before been faced with such a desperate situation, he knew that with God all things are possible. The very fact that the dead child had been placed upon his bed was a direct challenge to his faith, and nobly did he meet it. He went in therefore and shut the door upon them twain and prayed unto the Lord. Verse 33 We are not quite clear whether them twain refers to himself and the child or to the mother and Gehazi who had most probably accompanied him but whichever it was his action in closing the door denoted his desire for privacy. The prophet practiced what he preached to others. In the miracle recorded at the beginning of our chapter, Elisha had bidden the widow shut the door upon herself and her sons, verse 4, so as to avoid ostentation. And here Elisha follows the same course. Moreover, he was about to engage the Lord in prayer, most urgent and special prayer, and that is certainly something which calls for aloneness with God. The minister of the gospel needs to be much on his guard on this point, precluding everything which savors of advertising his piety like the Pharisees did. See Matthew 6, 5 and 6. Here then was the means of this miracle the unfaltering faith of the mother and now the faith of the prophet expressed in prayer unto his master, acknowledging his own helplessness, humbly but trustfully presenting the need to him, counting upon his almighty power and goodness. 
fifth is procedure. And he went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child and the flesh of the child waxed warm. Verse 34. The means used by the prophet and the policy he followed are so closely linked together that they merge into one another without any break. The faith of Elisha finding expression in prayer. Considering the extraordinary situation here, how that act of the prophet serves to demonstrate that he was accustomed to count upon God in times of emergency, to look for wondrous blessings from him in response to his supplications, that he was fully persuaded nothing was too hard for Jehovah, and therefore no petition too large to present unto him. The more faith looks to the infinite power and all-sufficiency of the one with whom it has to do, the more is he honored. Next, the prophet stretched himself on the body of the little one, which was expressive of his deep affection for him and his intense longing for its restoration, as though he would communicate his own life and thereby revive him. Those who are familiar with the life and miracles of Elijah will at once be struck with the likeness between Elijah's actions here and the conduct of his predecessor on a similar occasion. In fact, so close is the resemblance between them, it is evident the one was patterned after that of the other, showing how closely the man of God must keep to the scripture model if he would be successful in the divine service. First, Elijah had taken the lifeless child of the Zarephath widow, carried him upstairs and laid him on his own bed, thereby preventing any human eyes from observing what transpired. Next, he cried unto the Lord, and then he stretched himself upon the child. First Kings 17, 19-21 In addition to what had been pointed out previously, we believe this stretching of the prophet on the one for whom he prayed signified an act of identification, and it was a proof that he was putting his whole soul into the work of supplication. If we are to prevail in interceding for another, we must perforce make his or her case ours, taking his need or burden upon our own spirit and then spreading it before God. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro. Verse 35 Let it be noted that even the prayer of an Elisha did not meet with an immediate and full answer. Why then should we be so soon disheartened when heaven appears to be tardy in responding to our crying? God is sovereign in this as in everything else, by which we mean that He does not deal uniformly with us, 
Sometimes our request is answered immediately at the first time of asking. But more often he calls for perseverance and persistence, requiring us to wait patiently for him. We have seen how many rebuffs the faith of the mother met with, and now the faith of the prophet is tested too. It is true that he had been granted an encouragement by the waxing warm of the child's body, as the Lord is pleased to often give us a token for good. Psalm 86.17, ere the full answer is received. But as yet there was no sign of returning consciousness, and the form of the little one still lay silent and inert before him. And that also has been recorded for our instruction. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him. Verse 35 This pacing up and down seems to denote a measure of perturbation of mind, for the prophets were subject to like passions as we are. James 5.17 And compassed with the same infirmities. But even if Elisha was now at his wit's end, he did not give way to despair and regard the situation as hopeless. No, he continued clinging to him who is the giver of every good and perfect gift, and again stretched himself upon the child. Let us lay this important lesson to heart and put it into practice for it is at this point so many fail. It is the perseverance of faith which wins the day. See Matthew 7, verse 7. Scott has pointed out, it is instructive to compare the manner in which Elijah and Elisha wrought their miracles, especially in raising the dead, with that of Jesus Christ. Every part of their conduct expressed a consciousness of inability and an entire dependence upon another, an earnest supplication for his intervention. But Jesus wrought by his own power. He spake, and it was done. Young man, I say unto thee, Arise, Talitha Cumi, Lazarus, come forth. In all things, he has the preeminence. Sixth, it's marvel. This was nothing less than the quickening of the child, the restoring a dead body to life. Chapter 8, verse 5. After the prophet had again stretched himself upon the child, we are told that the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. 2 Kings 4, verse 35 See how ready God is to respond to the exercise of real faith in Himself. In this case, neither the mother nor the prophet had any definite or even indefinite promise they could read. For the Lord had not said the child should be preserved in health or recovered if he fell ill. But though they had no promise, they laid hold of the known character of God, since 
He had given the child unasked. Elisha would not believe he would now withdraw his gift and leave his benefactress worse off than she was before. Elisha knew that with the Lord there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James 1.17 And he clung to that. True, it makes prayer easier when there is some specific promise we can plead. Yet it is a higher order of faith that lays hold of God himself. There was no promise that God would pardon a penitent murderer, and no sacrifice was appointed for such a sin. Yet David appealed not in vain to the multitude of his tender mercies. Psalm 51, 1 And the child opened his eyes. Verse 35 See what a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God is ours? Hopeless as our case may be, so far as all human aid is concerned, it is not too hard for the Lord. But we must ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed, and therefore is it added, Let not that man think that he shall obtain anything from the Lord. James 1, 6 and 7. No, rather, it is the one who declares with Jacob, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Genesis thirty-two twenty-six. who obtains his request. What must have been Elisha's delight when he saw the child revive and obtain this further experience of God's grace? in hearkening to his petition and delivering him from his grief. How great must have been his joy as he called for Gehazi and bade him summon the mother, and when he said to her, Take up thy son. Blessed is it to behold her silent gratitude, too full for words as she fell at his feet and in worship to God bowed herself to the ground, and she took up her son and went out. Verse 37, to get alone with God and pour out her heart in thanksgiving to Him. Seventh, its meaning. Some help is obtained thereon by noting that this passage which sets before us the seventh miracle of our prophet opens with the connective conjunction, verse 18. That and not only intimates the continuity of the narrative, notes the striking contrast between the two principal divisions of it, but also indicates there is an intimate relation between them. As we have pointed out on previous occasions, the word and is used in Scripture sometimes with the purpose of linking two things together, but at other times with the object of placing two objects or incidents in juxtaposition in order to display the contrasts between them. In the present instance, it appears to be used for both reasons. 
as we hope to show, light is thrown on the typical significance of this miracle by carefully noting how it is immediately linked to the one preceding it. When we look at the respective incidents described, we are at once struck with the antithesis presented. In the former we behold Elisha journeying to Shunem. In the latter, it is the woman who betakes herself to him. There it was the woman befriending the prophet. Here he is seen befriending her. In that, a son is miraculously given to her. In this, he is taken away. The typical meaning of that does not appear on the surface, and therefore it will not be a simple matter for us to make it clear unto the hearer. Only the regenerate will be able to follow us intelligently, for they alone have experienced in their spiritual history that which is here set forth in figure. That which is outstanding in this incident is the mysteriousness of it, that a child should be miraculously given to this woman, and then that the hand of death should be laid upon him. That was not only a sore trial to the poor mother, but a most perplexing providence. To carnal reason, it seemed as though God was mocking her, But is there not also something equally tragic, equally baffling in the experience of the Christian? In the last miracle, we were shown a picture of the fruit of redemption, and here death appears to be written on that fruit. Ah, my hero, let it be clearly understood that we are as dependent upon God for the maintenance of that fruit as we were for the actual bestowing of it. And what is the fruit of redemption as it applies to the individual? From the side which looks Godward, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, preservation. But from the southward side, what a list might be drawn up. Peace joy, assurance, fellowship with God and His people, delight in His word, liberty in prayer, weanedness from the world, affections set upon things above. Oh, the inexpressible sweetness of our espousals, Jeremiah 2, verse 2, and of our first love, Revelation 2, 4. But in many cases, how soon is that joy dampened and that love left? How wretched then is the soul, like Rachel mourning for her children, we refuse to be comforted. How sore the perplexity! How Satan seeks to take advantage and persuade such an one that God has ceased to be gracious! How passing strange that such a blight should have fallen upon the fruit of the Spirit. How deeply mysterious the deadness which now rests upon the garden of God's planting, 
causing the soul to say with the poet, Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed, how sweet their memory still! But now I feel an aching void the world can never fill. Yes, it does indeed seem inexplicable that the child of God's own workmanship should pine away and, to sense, lie cold and lifeless. Ah, but we must not stop there. We must not sit down and despair and conclude that all is lost. The incident before us does not end at that point. The death of the child was not the final thing. There is good hope for us here, important instruction to heed. That great woman did not give way to dejection and assume that all hope was gone. Very far from it. And if the Christian who is sensible of spiritual decays, of languishing graces, of his dire need of being renewed in the inner man, would experience a gracious reviving, then he should emulate this mother and do as she did. And again we would point out that she did not faint in the day of trouble and indulge in self-pity. She did not bemoan her helplessness and say, What can I do in the presence of death? And if she did not, why should you? Mark attentively what this stricken woman did. One, she regarded this inexplicable and painful dispensation as a testing of her faith, and she acted accordingly. Two, she moved promptly. Without delay, she carried the child upstairs and laid him on the prophet's bed in anticipation of the Lord's showing himself strong on her behalf. Three, she vigorously bestirred herself, going to some trouble in order to obtain relief, starting out on an arduous journey. Four, she refused to be deterred when her own husband half discouraged her. Five, she sought unto the one who had promised the son in the first instance. The soul must turn to God and cry, Quicken thou me according to thy word. Psalm 119.25 6. She clung to the original promise and refused to believe that God had ceased to be gracious. Verse 28 7. She declined to be put off by the unavailing intervention of an unregenerate minister. Verses 29 and 30 8. She persisted in counting upon the power of Elisha, who was, to her, the representative of God, and gloriously was her faith rewarded. Regarding the typical meaning of this miracle in connection with Elisha himself, it teaches us the following points. 1. The servant of God must not be surprised if those in whose conversion he has been instrumental should later experience a spiritual decay, especially when he is absent from them. 2. 
if he would be used to their restoration, no half measures will avail, nor may he entrust the work to a delegate. 3. Prayer Believing, expectant, fervent prayer must be his first recourse. 4. In seeking to revive a languishing soul, he must descend to the level of the one to whom he ministers, verse 34, and not stand on some pedestal as though he were a superior being. 5. He must not be discouraged because there is not an immediate and complete response to his efforts, but should persevere therein. 6. No cold and formal measures will suffice. He must throw himself into this work heart and soul. 7. The order of recovery was renewed circulation. Verse 34. Sneezing. Eyes opened. The affections warmed. The head cleared. Understanding restored. Vision. Chapter 12. Eighth Miracle The passage which is to be before us, 2 Kings 4, 38-41, has in it practical instruction as well as spiritual or typical lessons for us. For the scriptures make known the evils and dangers which are in this world as well as the glory and bliss of the world to come. Elisha was visiting the school of the prophets at Gilgal, instructing them in the things of God. At the close of a meeting, he gave orders that a simple meal should be prepared for them. For though he was more concerned about their spiritual welfare, he did not overlook their physical. It was a time of dearth or famine. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.